0: For all of us this morning, and I feel like particularly a special treat for me, Um, the Lord's providence is an amazing thing. Uh, When we moved to Lynchburg, Virginia in 2010, we moved into a condominium, and living three or four condos down was Marcel and Jacqueline Howard and their four kids, and we got to know them a little bit, discovered uh, our shared love for good theology and good books, and Kept in contact over uh, the next few years, saw them occasionally, and uh, when we were looking to hire a family pastor, um, I just I heard that he was pursuing full time ministry and contacted him. And our search committee just really enjoyed uh, talking with him and uh, spending time over Skype with him, reading what he'd written on our questionnaires and all that. And so uh, we were just really excited to to get to know them better and to bring uh, the Howards here. So this morning, Marcel and his wife Jacqueline and their youngest, Eli, who's 10, are with us. I will not make them stand at all. Um, But we're going to have a meet and greet time after the service uh, right out there. So I definitely would encourage you all uh, to stay for that and just say hi to them and uh, spend a little time with them uh, during that. Um, But a couple of things uh, before he comes to preach that I have really appreciated about Marcel in particular Um, as as we've known them over the years, and then particularly as we've uh, interacted with him over Skype and through this interview process uh, for the family pastor position. Uh, But one is uh, just a genuine love for people. Um, This guy is engaging and personable, and I think anyone who's uh, spent any time with him knows that, and he just has a genuine affection for people. And uh, that is a, a wonderful gift of God and uh, something that can be used mightily in ministry and I know is being used in ministry uh, where he's at right now. The other thing that I really appreciate about him and that is challenging to me personally is the way he takes the Word of God, reads it and loves it, and then applies it to everyday life and to uh, life circumstances. Um, he is very careful to know and understand that the Bible is not just a an intellectual book, It's a book that shapes us and changes us in our everyday life, the way we parent our kids, the way we live with our spouse, the way we work, uh, the way we view issues in the broader culture. Um, And so I appreciate that about him, and I'm excited to hear from him this morning. And so uh, looking forward to hearing from you, brother. Thankful that you're here. Um, Let's go.
1: all right good morning woodhaven wait a second let's try that again good morning woodhaven that's what i'm talking about that's what i'm talking about it is truly an honor and a privilege to be with you all nathan you've said such kind words you know what they say about flattery right my friend keep it going keep it coming keep it coming that's what they say about flattery right i see some uh familiar face in the audience and uh i'm so grateful that uh dear friend, could come. And, uh, but again, I am grateful to be here with you all today and uh, just am, and it was humbled by the opportunity that we've had this weekend to just connect with many of your leaders and uh, many of the individuals who are part of the, uh, the search committee, um, encouraged by the way in which you guys have been praying for my family, right? Praying for my wife and uh, my, our four kids. We have our youngest boy, Eli, with us today and uh again we won't have him stand up he's a he's an introvert totally an introvert for god's glory all (laughs) right introverted for god's glory so uh what i want to do before we jump into our time because uh, nathan said i only have 15 minutes no just kidding no he he actually said two hours so (laughs) um no, I'm not going to keep you long. You know most preachers say that, and you know what they end up doing? Keeping you long. All right. But um, what we're going to do before we jump into our time, we're going to actually open up with a word of prayer, and uh, we're going to dive into uh, what I was assigned to do this morning, which is preach. Okay. Let's uh, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your love and your mercy and your grace towards us through the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would still our hearts during this time. Uh, that you would use this time to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us uh, to have hearts that rejoice in him. Help us, God, to uh, have affections that are stirred for him. Would you ignite in us a sincere passion for your glory? Give us a passion for your gospel. Give us a passion for your truth. Give us a passion for one another. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, again, I'm, I'm just so excited right now. So excited to be before you all uh, over the past few months. I've had the opportunity to just engage with your leadership. And uh, I am just encouraged about what God is doing in and through you all as a body. And uh, this is a, certainly an exciting season for Woodhaven. Definitely an exciting season for Woodhaven. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you can turn with me to 1 Peter we're going to actually uh, plunge into this this epistle, and um, this is a this is definitely an epistle that I I've grown to love because I've taught through it, <laughs> right? But also, it's an epistle that I think holds weight for us today. Uh, this is an epistle that comes to a a, a marginalized ideological minority. Within a majority culture that has a low view of humanity, a low view of personhood, ethics, and morality. And I'm going to give you a little more in terms of the backdrop of 1 Peter, okay? Um, And here's the cultural uh, backdrop of 1 Peter. It was written just before, uh, maybe just before, shortly after AD 64. And uh, during the time, there was a Roman emperor who... Was who who was in control during that time? This Roman emperor, his name is Nero, right? Nero. Kind of reminds me from uh, about this uh, growing up. There was a uh, a movie called The Lion King, and there was this scene with the hyenas and uh, Scar, and every time Scar would say Mufasa to the hyenas. The hyenas hyenas would would respond and go, ooh, right? So (laughs) I was actually expecting that response when I said Nero. Ooh, all right. Probably not the case. All right. A little too far removed. But what was kind of interesting about Nero, uh, historians, they often speak of his quest for power. Uh, He had a very sadistic orientation, to say the least, Along with that, it was during the during, during Emperor's reign, during his rule, there's a historical event that's known as the Great Fires of Rome. And what's interesting is that the Great Fires of Rome lasted for 10 days. It decimated 70, 75% of the population. There was discord and hostility within the populace. And much of that discord and hostility came from the fact that many believed that Nero had a hand in it. All right. As a matter of fact, he did have have a hand in it. And if if you're a ruler, all right, if your people aren't responding the way in which they should, if they they want to see you out and necessarily of office, but out of that position, you've got to make a PR move. All right. And Nero does just that. He makes a PR move. And this PR move, it happens in this way. His approval rating is falling. So he decides to create a false narrative. And in creating this false narrative, he sends out fake news. And along with sending out fake news, he chooses the Christians as the scapegoat. Now, the Christians during that time, particularly within the, the Roman Empire, they were already viewed as a subversive religious group. That was that was in opposition to Roman culture, so he figured, hey, why, why not? Let's put the blame on them, All right? Let's create that false narrative. And what the aftermath of the false narrative, the aftermath of the fake news uh, being sent out, is that Christians are persecuted. Christians are they're arrested, they're tortured, and there's there's hostility that is growing tremendously. And we find ourselves here in First Peter, and Peter, he's writing to a group of, we would say, elect exiles, because the, the, the text says that. And with the hostilities that are growing, Peter's writing to groups of Christians who, who, who've experienced the hostilities. And these groups of, uh, of Christians, we see this in First Peter chapter one, it reads, "To the elect exiles." who were of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, All right? So that's the context. That's the context. And I love just with the entire book in and of itself, Peter has this, this pastoral way about himself. And the pastoral way about himself that he transacts is that he's, he's exhorting these exiles, exhorting them to live obediently to Christ despite the hostilities that you're in live obedient to Christ, even more so stand firm in the gospel, stand firm in the gospel. And therein is uh, the title for today's message, standing firm in the gospel. So if you can uh, open up God's word with me and go to first Peter, Chapter uh, chapter one, we'll look at we're going to actually read verses 13 through we'll stop at 21 since I only have 15 minutes. So let's read. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, with reverence. Throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Who through him. You become believers in God. And here's what God did. He raised Jesus from the dead. And he gave him glory. So that your faith. My faith. Our faith. And our hope are in God. Alright. So what I want to do. Is uh, just kind of. Plunge into. Um, some, some marks of what it looks like for us to stand firm in the gospel. And then I want to take a look at how Peter takes and unpacks the motivations behind it. So we've got three marks, three motivations, and then there's going to be what I like to call a Monday morning takeaway. All right, Monday morning takeaway. Just a fancy way of saying, hey, we, we need to talk about application. All right, How, how can we apply what we're hearing? All right, so we need to be thinking about application. Um, what's, what's, what's interesting about the beginning of the letter is that one Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. All right, unapologetically, unashamedly, he's, he says, I am an apostle, not that apostle, but an apostle of Jesus Christ, and what's 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 also unique is that when we read the beginning of this uh, this letter, Peter makes a beeline to a very controversial, very controversial doctrine, and that doctrine has everything to do with sovereign election—the fact that God, who is the creator and sustainer of all, He is. In control, he is the authority, he is the one that that brings about the very salvation that we rejoice in, the very salvation that we get to experience. And again, that's a, a hot and a contested doctrine in and of itself. But Peter is unapologetic here. He goes there. As a matter of fact, he places it at the beginning of this passage. And in placing it at the beginning of this passage, I think one of our takeaways could be hey, we don't want to miss out on sovereign election. We don't want to miss out on uh, the glories of our redemption that come from understanding what sovereign election is all about. Because if we miss out on it, it, it jades and diminishes the glories of that great redemption. And Peter even speaks to this great, uh, this great redemption in verse three. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's according to his great, his great mercy. Here's what he did for us. According to his great mercy, he. Give me one second. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And this has happened through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and if you quickly read through that section, verse three through verse nine here 's where Peter goes with it. He expounds on the legitimacy of this great salvation he re- he expounds on the the certainty of this great salvation he even goes the route of talking about the trajectory of that great salvation, and then he touches he touches on verse verse ten. He touches on the prophetic fulfillment of that great salvation. And he doesn't stop there. He even says of this, uh, of this great salvation that the heavenly host are captivated by it. Interesting. The heavenly hosts are captivated by it. But when we get to verse 13, because that's where, where we're going to start, and we're going to be dealing with 13 through 21, Peter, he lays out this exhortation. And what's so interesting in verse 13, he lays it out in military fashion. And this is military fashion to bring about a a decisive kind of action. And the main emphasis of verse 13 has everything to do with setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the main emphasis of that particular verse. That's the command. You. Me. They, they need to set their hope fully on that grace. And I love what John MacArthur, 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 MacArthur. <laughs> I love what, I like to call him Johnny Mac, right? So I call him Johnny Mac. I love what Johnny Mac says about this hope that Peter is alluding to that he's gauging here. He says that this hope is the anticipation of what God will do. As promised in scripture, this is a biblical hope that affirms the integrity of God's promise. And it declares that he is a covenant keeping God. That's that's the hope there. That's the hope. And again, when we think about the the command in and of itself, it kind of operates like a summons. The summons to this group, these groups of exiles. And this is great for us is to live on mission, to live on mission in an anticipation of our Lord's return. And when we live on mission and in in anticipation of our Lord's return, it also means that we need to stand firm in the gospel. The gentleman by the name of uh, Brett McCracken. Brett McCracken, that's a great last name, by the way. Uh McCracken. What's what's McCracken? McCracken. All right. So Brett McCracken, <laughs> in his book, Uncomfortable, kind of reading through that right now, um, he says that uh it, when you read through First Peter, this is certainly it's a, it's an it's an exhortation to stand firm in the grace of God, but it's it's also uh it also lays out this idea of engaged alienation now right? because these are sojourners sojourners here they're they're exiles and he says there's a term engaged alienation here's what this term means this doesn't mean that we disengage from culture or build impenetrable impenetrable uh dialogue averse walls around our institutions rather it's a Christianity that pr- it, it preserves the distinctiveness of our gospel while not retreating from our call to be neighbors. Interesting. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Paul kind of communicates this in Titus. Um, uh, he doesn't kind of communicate it. He actually does communicate it in Titus. We go to Titus chapter 2. We look at verses 11 through 14. I know Nathan has been teaching through Titus, and he told me, stay away from Titus. Sorry, man. Sorry. not going to do that today. I'll just use a sliver of it. We go to cha- Titus chapter 2. We look at uh, verses 11 through 14, and again, we're thinking about the idea of engaged alienation. Um, Titus 2, verse 11 through 14 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. And we wait, we wait for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what he did. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. All right. So what I want to do is, again, just look at how Paul details, sorry, how Peter details our three marks for standing firm in the gospel, but also the three motivations behind it. Uh, So let's look at verse 13 again. He says, therefore, prepare your minds and be sober-minded, you need to set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is our, our first, our first mark. And that first mark it's actually posted. <laughs> it's displayed for us. It's one of disciplined thinking, disciplined thinking. And what's neat about this particular verse is prior to the command, uh, Peter ends up using two participle phrases to really flesh all of this out. And the two participle uh, phrases that he uses in verse 13, it's at the beginning. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. And the other participle is to be sober-minded, being sober-minded. And here's what prepare your mind for action means. Depending on your translation, your Bible translation, it may say gird up, right? But the idea behind that is, uh, is that it refers to tightening a belt or tying something down in preparation for a certain type of action. Right? So in ancient, in ancient, in, in ancient times, um, individuals would basically pull up their robes and tie them down uh, in order to play a little basketball. Just kidding. <laughs> but they would pull up their robes and tie them down in order to prepare for some type of action. Right. Whether or not they needed to respond to a particular thing, but they would do that in preparation for the action. The second part of simple phrase of being sober minded, it literally speaks to not losing uh, control of thought or action. And again, he uses these two phrases, these these two participle phrases, to drive home the point of disciplined thinking. And I think for us, our takeaway here should be seen in that that he's he's urging believers to pull in the loose ends of their lives and to discipline their 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 thoughts in truth. That holds weight for us today. Right? So when we think about just discipline, disciplining our, our lives or disciplining our thinking and pulling in the loose end of our of our lives. What this means is that we need to cultivate a thought life in the truth of the gospel. And we need to orient our thinking around who God is. We need to orient our thinking about how God has made himself known. We need to orient our thinking about what he's done through Jesus to redeem us. And as we do that, this radically shapes and informs are living, are living. So here's Peter saying, "Hey, look, draw in, draw, draw up, pull in the loose ends of your lives. Discipline your thoughts. What we need now is disciplined thinking." Here's the second mark. Here's the second mark. Um, and let me let me just say this before I move on. When when we come to Christ, right? Jesus he, he draws us in. Right? disciplined thinking or let me use another phrase biblical thinking doesn't happen automatically it's process it takes time and intentionality it's a beautiful thing it happens in community certainly happens in community and it has to be prioritized it's got to be prioritized we'll go to the sec uh the second marker of standing firm in the gospel and we see this in verse 14. We're not going to get too far into verse 14 because that'll go into our third marker. But the second marker for standing firm in the gospel, Peter says, as obedient children. I love that term. As obedient children. I like to say that to my son, Eli, as obedient children. <laughs> but he says, as obedient children. And I want to stop there to press into that second marker. Because that second marker is that of deliberate obedience. Deliberate obedience, right? So if we're standing firm in the gospel, what that means is that we've got um, uh, disciplined thinking, we've got deliberate obedience, and this is, a, this is a marker that should characterize every true believer. Obedience. You can even take a self-assessment right now. Am I obedient? Maybe some of you that are married, you'd maybe ask your wives, right? Ask your spouses. Do I transact this? Children, ask your parents, do I, am I obedient? That type of thing. Now, Paul states in Romans 16, I'm sorry, Romans 6, verse 17, uh, as it pertains to deliberate obedience. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, you've become obedient. There's that term again, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. John also reiterates this, this idea of deliberate obedience. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 through 3, he says, By this we, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. But I want to read a little further in um, 1 Peter. we look back, back at chapter, four, I mean, uh, chapter 1 and look at verse 14. Because Peter, he roots Obedience in something. Okay? Catch what he roots obedience in. It reads, verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former your former ignorance. Obedience is rooted in making war with sin. The only way in which we can transact obedience is if... We make war with sin, I know you're thinking, but Jesus paid it all, yes, he did absolutely, but he's equipped you to make war with sin. The beautiful thing about Jesus paying it all the only way that we can make war with sin is by his grace, and the only way that we can be um the only way that we can be triumphant and successful in this is if we're making war with the fact that look Jesus has forgiven all sins right. And we make war with this forgiven sin. And he equips us. He gives us what we need so that we can carry out deliberate obedience. Deliberate obedience. I love what uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. I want to read that really quick. But that is not the way that you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Here's what you do. You make war. You put off the old self. Which belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt, it's deceitful. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So there's a putting off, but there's also a putting on, right, with making war with sin. You put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the second mark deliberate obedience, deliberate obedience. All right. We're just starting to cook here. All right. <laughs> I should have done that. We're just starting to cook. Some of you, you basketball enthusiasts, you'd know what I mean if I didn't. Yeah. right. So we've got a, as far as the, the marks that, that are displayed when we're standing firm in the gospel, we've got disciplined thinking, deliberate obedience. That third mark we're going to read in uh, verse uh, 15. Verse 15, it states, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. And um, what's interesting is that we, there needs to be a desire for holiness, desire for holiness. And what, what I would do want to note about uh, this particular section is that um, this command to be holy. Here's what it's, what it's rooted in. It's rooted in the reality of who God is. And when we get to the motivations, we're going to talk about that reality. He's the thrice holy God. He's what scripture says, holy, holy, holy. That's to catch our attention and draw us in. Right? But he's the thrice holy God. And I think something that we need to be thinking through as it pertains to uh, a desire to be holy. Is that regardless of the, the climate that we're in. And I want to kind of parse this out a bit. Regardless of the moral, the religious, the political, the economical circumstances, that being the climate, within any culture, this is never a license to jettison the command to be holy. All right? So by the fact that you live in the suburbs of Woodhaven or the suburbs of whatever, wherever we are in, in Detroit, this is not, like, your cultural climate is not a, that's not a, a license to jettison this command. I've got, good, I've got a good marriage. Well, hey, guess what? God calls you to be holy. It's, 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 it's not a license. We're being commanded to be holy. And I want you to consider who the command comes from, right? This idea of God being holy. He is the moral. He is morally excellent in all of his ways. I can't say that about myself. And if I tried, my wife would be like, what? How you <laughs> all right? He's the morally excellent one. He's separated from uh, from sin. He is devoted to seek his own honor, and the only and, and the and the moral excellent one is immensely concerned about their pursuit of holiness. In the same, he's concerned about our pursuit of holiness as well. I love what First uh, John uh, chapter three verse three reads. It says, "And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he." is pure what haven if 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 our living your living my living becomes co-opted by the culture think about that co-opted by the culture and it's at odds with the biblical truth with biblical truth in and of itself specifically as it pertains to being holy then we are disregarding our lord's command to do just that he's commanding us to be holy that's our third marker. All right, hang with me. I'm almost done. I am almost done. I see a couple of sanctified yawns going on, and <laughs> there's nothing more hilarious than a sanctified yawn. Stay with me, all right? Uh, stay, stay with me. We're going to go to the uh, the motivations. Okay, so we have we've got uh, the the markers of standing firm. Let's get to these motivations, and this is the our, our last section. And I want to kind of get through this for the sake of just uh, being respectful of your time. Uh, three motivations that are laid out in verses 16, 17, 18 through 19 as well. Uh, the motivations are this. God's holy character demands it. Christ, uh, his, his impartial judgment warns us to it. And the last motivation, I'm going to go through each of these. Christ's sacrifice compels us in it. And this is in verses 18 19 but let's let's go to that first motivation god's holy character uh commands it and peter's quoting here from uh leviticus uh chapter 11 verses 44 through 45 and i'm not going to read that because of time but again he's drawing them in he's drawing them into the weighty truth of the thrice holy god who has summoned them who's commanding them to be holy and what's interesting is that the the command, the imperative, in and of itself, it flows from the 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 indicative of what God is. You got imperatives and, and and indicatives, right? The command, the imperative, flows from the indicative, right? And the indicative, what's being indicated, is that is that God is holy, and He's commanding us to pursue holiness. And when we say God is holy, here's here's what's being here's what I mean by that. God is holy. All of God is holy. There's not an aspect of his nature, not an aspect of his character, not an an aspect of his his existence, his essence, his being. That's not holy. All of God is uh, is, is holy. His love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy mercy. His wrath is a holy wrath. His justice is a holy justice. His knowledge is a holy knowledge. And when we understand that, as individual as, as 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 a people who are desiring to be holy here's what it demands right it demands our allegiance it demands our adoration it demands our our our, our affections I'm trying to alliterate there i need some water i'm just kidding <laughs> but again it demands allegiance adoration and affections so god's holy character demands it that second motivation, his impartial judgment warns us to it. And it's, it's almost as if when we read through this particular section, um, we look at verse 16 and then we get to verse 17. It's almost as if, as if Peter's saying, well, if his character isn't enough to move us, perhaps the fact that he's the holy and righteous judge, maybe that will motivate us to stand firm in the gospel. And what's what's interesting is that when we think about judgment certainly Romans 8 says therefore there is no what Come on talk to me no condemnation We get that right There's there's been a change of status for us We've gone from rebels to redeemed right So there's been a, a just this comprehensive change of status But here's here's where we've got to be careful right God is still the holy and righteous judge. And yes, there is no condemnation. But we will still be judged. We'll still be judged. And this is not a judgment of condemnation, certainly. It's one of evaluation. Evaluation. We don't get too many amens on that one. Amen, evaluation. But it's one of evaluation. And for us as Christians, we need to be thinking about the bema seat of Christ, going to give you some some verses that touch on that uh first corinthians Corinthians, uh chapter three if we look at verses 10 through 15 but along with that there's second corinthians chapter five we look at verses nine through ten and the point that i want to make here is that when we understand the holiness of god his majesty and his splendor the fact that he is the righteous judge of all of creation it should bring us to reverence. It should bring us to uh, proper worship. You ever want to take some time to read through Revelation chapter 4, and there's there's this heavenly hymn that's being sung by the heavenly host. You've got your 24 elders. You've got your really interesting, uh, like, beings. They've got, like, four eyes. They're really awkward. It's really interesting. But they're they're all joining in this, this, this majestic song. And this majestic song is basically, it's being sung to the one who's certainly holy, 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 but also to the one who is the creator, the sustainer, the one who is the righteous judge. Right? Who's the righteous judge. And before I move on to this, uh, the third motivation, I want you to keep this in mind with the context that I gave you. Right. Peter's Peter's pinning this to uh, a group of exiles. These exiles, the the kind of the climate around them, there's hostilities rising. Right. Uh, And with these hostilities rising, you've got certainly Nero is the emperor. And as Nero is the emperor, there's this inevitability of if you identify as a Christian, the inevitability is that there's going to be judgment, right? There's going to be torture and maybe possibly death. But when we understand the holiness of God, you know what? That experience pales in comparison to the fact that we and they are going to stand before a holy, just, and righteous God. It kind of puts things into perspective. Right? God is the righteous judge. Emperor is not. I mean, uh Nero's not. Right? God is the righteous judge. He brings about justice. Capitalism doesn't. Oh, I may not. God, God is the righteous judge. Our political system, while I'm grateful for it, it's its not. It's not the righteous judge. God is. God is. Here's the final um, motivation. We look at verses 18 through 19. And I'm going to read these. I'm going to try to work through this quickly. Verse 18 through 19 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I'm going to read verses uh, 20 through 21 as well. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And again, let's let's go back to Peter's line of thinking with the motivations. If God's character won't capture us to stand firm in the gospel, if his impartial judgment, us thinking about the beam, if that doesn't motivate us, then perhaps... A reflection on the preciousness of Jesus' sacrifice will compel us. And I, I, w- I would dare say that it should. It should compel us. Here's what Johnny Mack says, let me say Johnny Mack. He states, "Because all people are helpless slaves to sin and condemned by the law, if they are to be forgiven and reconciled back to God, he has to purchase them back from their condition. Only then can he release them from sins, bondage, and curse. We go back to verse 18. Look at the beeline that Peter makes. Makes a beeline to the gospel. He says, he begins verse 18 saying, knowing that you were, I need you guys to say this for me. Knowing that you were what? Ransomed. Knowing that you were ransomed. And here's what the ransom entails. If we were to flip over to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 and we look at verse 18, that ransom entails the righteous one for the unrighteous ones. The righteous one for the unrighteous ones. And then when we move down to verse 19. He says, okay, you were, verse 18 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. If we had more time, we'd talk about Their forefathers were, but we've got to get going with this. Verse 19 says, but with the precious blood of Christ. All right. And here's what he has to say, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And Peter, he uses some imagery that's very familiar to his readers, very familiar to his audience. And the imagery has everything to do with the Passover narrative of, of Exodus chapter 12. Looking at the first 13 verses and the Passover narrative, we all we all know what the Passover is. The Passover narrative, this, this event in and of itself is a symbol for substitutionary redemption. If we were to flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and look at verses 7 through 8, it makes it very clear. And this was a, a, an event that was celebrated by Israel and had everything to do with how God brought them out of Egypt. God being the great liberator. But the event in and of itself, it, it wasn't meant to stop there because it was meant to actually point to something, to someone. And it served to point them to the true lamb who would one day die and rise again as their perfect and final substitutionary sacrifice. And by doing that, he would redeem sinners with his blood. That's what, the, that's, that's what this, this, this is pointing to. And, and Peter's aiming to motivate this group by reminding them of the price of your of their redemption. And I would dare say that, look, we need to be reminded. I know Pastor Nathan, he, he goes in Sunday after Sunday, week after week, on the price of our redemption, of your redemption. We need to be reminded of that. I like what Leon Morris has to say about our redemption. Here's what Leon Morris says. He says, redemption is substitutionary. For it means that Christ paid the price that we could not pay. He paid it in our stead and we go free. Justification interprets our salvation judiciously. And as the New Testament seeks it or sees it, Christ took our legal liability. He took it in our stead. Reconciliation means that make the, means the making of people to be at one by taking away the cause of the hostility. i going to keep reading here. In this case, the cause is sin. And Christ removed that cause for us. We could not deal with sin. He could and did. And he did it in such a way that it is reckoned to us. Propitiation means, or it points us to the removal of the divine wrath. And Christ has done this by bearing the wrath for us. It was our sin which drew it down. It was he who bore it. Was there a price to be paid? He paid it. Let me say that again. Was there a price to be paid? He paid it. Was there a victory to be won? He won it. Was there a penalty to to be borne? He bore it. Was there a judgment to be faced? Guess what? He faced it. The price of our redemption. That should hold weight for us. That should compel us. That should motivate us indeed. We're running out of time and I'm going to end here. Um, I want you all to just kind of consider the, the immediate, the, the immediacy and the relevance of Peter's exhortation to this group of exiles. I want you to think about that. I'm going to go back to verse 13. he says, Set your hope on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If I could say it another way, I'd say it like this. He's communicating to his readers that the director of grace has given the directives of grace to the community of grace to stand firm in the gospel of grace. Let me say it one more time. The director of grace has given the directives of grace to the community of grace to stand firm. Woodhaven, stand firm in the gospel of grace. I want to end with uh, what, what we call down in Virginia. No, just kidding. We don't talk like that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I want to I end with what we call uh, in Virginia. We call this uh, at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. We call this Monday Morning Takeaways. And the Monday morning takeaways are designed such to where this is just more so food for thought. um, It should operate in such a way to where it informs our living, informs how we live, certainly. Here's the first Monday morning takeaway. I want you to just kind of think this through. And if I go too fast, just connect with me at the end of the service. I'll give it to you. All right. First Monday morning takeaway. As a redeemed people, we must cultivate our, our thought life in the truth of the gospel, and orient our thinking around who God is. And not only that, around how he's made himself known, about what he's done through the Lord Jesus. We should be thinking about the the preciousness of Jesus, his sacrifice. And we've got to allow that to radically shape and inform how we live. Here's the second Monday morning takeaway. As a redeemed people, we must preserve and stand firm, I like this, in in, in the distinctiveness of our gospel, right? There's only one good news. Aside from that, there's good advice, but there's one like cheap good news. And along with that, we, we shouldn't retreat from our calling to be neighbors, to be salt and light. We shouldn't retreat from that calling. I want to end here. I want to end in prayer. And uh, again, I just am so grateful for the opportunity to be before you all. Appreciate the grace that you've shown me all, uh, all throughout the weekend. Even the grace that you've shown me this morning in uh, preaching this hour-long sermon. All right. So let's let's end in prayer, and uh, we'll transition to the next, uh, the next thing. Let's pray, Father. So much more could be said. So much more to be said, but God, we're thankful for our time this morning and being able to feast on your word. God, I I just pray that you would help us to live on mission for you and standing firm in the gospel. Help us to apply what we've heard this morning. Help us to apply it. May we live obediently as your people. Help us to be dowed into the frequency of your grace. Help us to be set apart from your use, for your use. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.